Let's pause and pray. Father, we thank you and we are grateful for the simple fact that you are good in all that you do. There is not a sliver of malice or a sliver of meanness in you. You are good through and through. In everything that you do, all of your works are good. And in all of your works, Lord, you have declared that they are driven by your steadfast love for your people. I I pray, Lord, that we would sense that this morning, that you love us, that your words to us are good and they are loving. I pray that we as your people would humble ourselves as your children and embrace your words as, as from you, from a father to a child. Father, I pray you'd help me to communicate uh, this passage and that you would feed our hearts, minds, souls, lives, families, marriages through it. Um, so we just pray for your grace and we pray the power of your spirit would be at work and we pray this all in the name of our Savior, our King, the crucified one who gave his life for us, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we begin our, our little journey through um, Psalm 49, I wanted to uh, first consider the difference between wisdom and knowledge. To be sure, those two things, knowledge and wisdom, are interrelated. We know that. Um, and yet they're not the same thing. Um, and that was kind of brought home in a little coffee mug that I saw one time where there was this little statement that kind of clarified the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And I actually have a picture of the coffee cup. And it, it goes like this. That knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. That's pretty good, don't you think? It's like you can know it's a fruit, but to know that it tastes nasty in a fruit salad, you know, is, is, is itself wisdom. It's like putting grapefruit juice in your Kona coffee. Just doesn't work unless maybe you're pregnant. Maybe that works then. But the idea is that there's knowledge, then there's wisdom, which is the ability to apply knowledge. Um, you can be a, a you can know all of the spices in your spice cabinet or your pantry, but it takes wisdom to blend them together to create this culinary ma- masterpiece of, of a recipe. That's kind of a good way of thinking about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Another thing that might be said is that knowledge is fairly easy to attain. It's it's really not hard to learn facts, to read books, to listen to TED talks, to. Uh, to read a good post on Reddit or whatever, our, 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 our world abounds in knowledge. It's not hard to acquire knowledge, but wisdom, the ability to discern, prioritize, and then apply knowledge, that's another thing. That's much more difficult to take knowledge and apply it to your marriage and apply it to your life. And the same, of course, is true of the scripture in general and the gospel in particular. It really is not that hard to have the knowledge of God, to know about God, to know about creation, to know about the covenants that he established with mankind, to know about his promises, to know biblical history. Now, granted, there is a lot to know, but it's not really all that hard, given enough time, to know those things, to know about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, that he substituted himself on the cross in our place, to know about the doctrine of justification, to know about the spirit, to know about the promise of life eternal and the new creation. Knowing those things is really kind of the easy part. But the ability to discern, prioritize, and apply those truths to your life, to your marriage, to your family, to your vocation, 
That's much more difficult. That's wisdom. And if there's one thing we need right now, it's wisdom. Granted, if, you, if you're new to the faith, you need knowledge too. Knowledge is absolutely critical. You can't have wisdom without knowledge, but you can have knowledge without wisdom. We need wisdom. Now, the reason I bring that up is because this psalm, Psalm 49, is categorically a wisdom psalm. It is meant to teach us wisdom. And what's going to unfold in the weeks ahead is God is going to, through this psalm, through the poet, the psalmist, he's going to show us the glory of the gospel right alongside the folly of human pride and worldliness. That is the wisdom of the gospel. Yes, the gospel right here in the Old Testament, Psalm 49, about the ransom, um, right alongside the folly of human pride and arrogance. It's a wisdom psalm. So with that said, um, I'm going to focus on two things this morning. We're going to look at the first four verses. That's it. And the first part we're going to look at is the universal call to hear. All right? That's the first part, verses 1 and 2. Followed by the divine voice of wisdom. So if you need just two words to camp on, it's hearing and it's wisdom. Those are the kind of two parts. And that second part is verses 3 and 4. The first part... The universal call to hear. This is what the psalmist writes. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. So here you have this universal call. This is not a call that's limited to the people of Israel, to the covenant people of Israel. It's like, I'm only talking to you. It's not. It's meant for all the peoples of the world, people who are low, that is people who have no power, no position, people who are helpless, disenfranchised, marginalized. It's for them, as well as the people in the positions and seats of power, presidents and kings and governors. It's for them too, low and high. It's also for those who have no income, no financial resources to speak of, and it's also for the Warren Buffets of the world. Everybody. This is a universal call to hear what God has to say through the rest of this psalm. It's for everybody, not just some. Now, that implies two things. The fact that this message goes out to everybody, no matter your position or your financial resources. It implies one, grace. Listen, I've thought about this a lot. If God had given us one word, a simple verb, that's all he gave us, it would be more than we deserve. If God had shut the faucet off of communication after Genesis 3, it's what we would have deserved. But he didn't. The simple fact that the Lord speaks to anyone is a mercy beyond our calculation. But he didn't just give us a word, he gave us words. And he didn't just give words to some people. He gives these words to all people. You can sense even deep in these Hebrew poems, God's passion, his love, and his grace and mercy for every tribe, tongue, and nation. Because this is a psalm that's supposed to go out to everybody. To talk about ransom. This is the gospel for all people. So in one sense, this implies this universal call implies grace. 
I think it also implies something else that I want to camp on for a second because of our cultural context. And that is that it implies that this message that's for all people is timeless. It's timeless. It's, it's every bit as true today as it was 2,800 years ago. Uh, it's, it's true in every time, place, tribe, tongue, and nation. That's, this universal call implies that this is a timeless message. It's not going to change. It's going to be the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Because it's for all nations. Now, why, 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 is, why is that important? It's important because we live in a time in which people devalue the idea of timeless truth. That is, we talk about absolutes, something that's always true never changes like this. He's saying, this is true for all of you, and I think the implication for all times means that this is an absolute truth psalm. That the idea that there are words, that there are concepts, that there are moralities and so forth that are timeless and unchanging, that's a concept that's vanishing like the, like the glaciers on Mount Kilimanjaro. Because people want to adopt the idea that What's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. So even though our truths may contradict each other, we have to have a big enough umbrella where we can have these mutually contradicting truths and it's okay. The whole flexible idea of truth. Now we know that that doesn't work in the, in the natural world, the physical world. Imagine for a second, two men standing on top of a cliff. One looks at the other and says, I don't believe that gravity is true. The other one looks down the cliff and says, well, I do believe it's true. And the first one who doesn't believe in the truth of gravity looks at the others and says, the other and says, well, that's true for you and this is true for me and then he steps off and discovers firsthand that gravity is true. In the world in which we live in, it's an absolute. So why, when we enter the moral and spiritual realm, is it changed? Again, the implication here is this is a message for all time, all people. That it's just as true in South America as it is in Europe. Just as true in Asia as it would be in Africa. Just as true in the first century as the 22nd or 21st century. Again, like I said, this is... This comes down to the bedrock of, of our, 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 our understanding of knowledge, of Bible, of reality. If we're, not, if we're not secure on the simple fact that God has spoken and it's an absolute word, then we're in big trouble, huge trouble. Do we get the right to define ourselves? Do we get the right to choose in what we find our identification. That's a world that starts with a me, not with him. This implication is that this message is timeless. We're told in the scripture that 
I, I believe, the consequences of the spiritual and moral choices we make are actually more important than gravity. What you sow, you will reap. So this psalm opens up with the assumption that this is a truth that is timeless. It is always enduring. It always applies, no matter who you are, where you live. That is the idea of biblical truth. We, church, have to be solid on what we believe about truth. The second part of this. So here you have this universal call to hear, implying that this truth is timeless and absolute, is the voice of wisdom. Verses 3 and 4. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Now, we have to be clear on a couple things. One is that this wisdom that the psalmist is going to speak ultimately comes from God. The, the psalmists were prophets. They, they were interpreted and applied by Jesus as people who spoke the words of God. So it's not like he went to school or he's just drumming up a bunch of experience and bringing his, his conclusions about life like you might experience in, I don't know, ancient China or some other place. Rather, this is, this is wisdom that he has, he has gained from God. So the source of the wisdom that he's about to give us in what follows, verses 5 and following, is wisdom that is, in fact, from God himself. This is divine wisdom. This is the, the voice of God speaking through the psalmist. At the same time, we have to also recognize that he participates in it. He says, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding, and I will incline my ear to a I will solve the riddle of the music of the lyre. So he participates in this divine revelation by way of meditation and inclining his heart, meditating. Again, a reminder that we're supposed to be thinking people. We're supposed to be analyzing and pondering and discerning and, and using these things between our ears with the revelation of God in our hands to be able to understand life. So he participates in it. But, again, this is wisdom that ultimately comes from God. The other thing that I think we have to be clear on that if this moves in the direction of application is that within the context of the Hebrew Scriptures and wisdom itself, wisdom, true wisdom for life, Good wisdom, wisdom that causes your marriage and your family and your life to flourish, always begins with God. Not me. It doesn't begin with me. It doesn't begin with you. Wisdom always begins with God. That's, that's crystal clear in the Old Testament. There is no such thing as wisdom that's detached from the fact that God exists and that God has actually revealed himself. So, just a couple of texts. Most of you know these. The psalmist, chapter 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the starting point. Proverbs 1.7, which was just read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 9, 10. 
So put it like this. If wisdom was a math equation, God would always be at the front of the equation and always be there. If wisdom was a song, God would be the key signature. Everything revolves around the key signature. If wisdom was philosophy, then God would be the enduring presupposition of all logic and knowledge. God is the beginning of wisdom. He is not only the starting point, but he's the end point. Without him, there is no wisdom. It's just folly. Like, on what are you going to base your understanding of life? Oprah Winfrey? I say that with respect. Kind of. <laughs> what are you going to base your, your, your life on? Here it says the, 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 it's the, the fear of the Lord. And it's not, not just the Lord's existence here. It's, 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 it actually is the fear of the Lord. And mind you, we, we talk about fear usually in negative ways. But the fear of the Lord, of God in particular, is very, very healthy. And it's, it doesn't exclude the idea of love and joy. Uh, you have oftentimes them coupled together. For example, Psalm 33, where it says, The eye of the Lord, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. There you have fear, hope, and, and steadfast love all slammed together in one verse. And the, the best analogy I can think of as to how that works itself out is my relationship with my own earthly father. I loved him, I love him, and I will love him after he dies because he's a Christian, he will live on. But I'll tell you what, I also had a healthy respect to that man. I did a lot of foolish things, but if I didn't have a father that I respected or feared, I would have done a lot worse. I loved and feared the man, and that was a healthy combination. If you know who God is, the creator of the ends of the earth, the one who is timeless, eternal, the one who speaks and creates existence in life, then there is a sense in which you say to yourself, oh my goodness, or I, literally, oh my God. A legitimate use of that phrase. Oh my goodness, fear. It's a fear of the Lord. You can't fear something you don't believe in. And you can't believe in something that hasn't been revealed to you. To the heart that's been opened to God, there should be a sense of fear because you believe he actually exists. That's the beginning of wisdom. Any, any attempt to be wise apart from God is the foundation, the presupposition of life is foolishness. Imagine if you were to take him away. And actually, let me just back up and say this. Could, could you imagine for a moment, we're sitting here, and all of life on earth exists because of this constant we call gravity, which I referred to earlier. Can you imagine if God said, took, took the switch of gravity and just said, I'm going to turn it off for five minutes. <laughs> Chairs would be floating. You'd be floating. Microphones and guitars would be floating. Sound men would be floating, so would, the, uh, so would the computers, cars floating, planes floating. Everything would eventually die if he didn't turn the switch back on. That's kind of what the world is like when, when God has been deleted, canceled out of the culture. Everything's free-floating. How long can it exist? 
or if I might put a finer point on it, Romans chapter 1, Paul's opening perhaps greatest letter he wrote. He talks about life in this world when God is deleted from the equation. And I'm just going to read what he wrote. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because, this is the cause, this is the reason, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So they want to do what they want to do. That's verse 24. The lust of their heart, the desires of the heart, which we have, unfortunately, in our culture, assigned identity to. And so what does God do? Okay, I'll give you over to what you want. And the reason, because they have replaced God with creation. The creation instead of the creator. They accepted a lie instead of the truth. And so, everybody now gets to do what they want to do. As an act of Divine judgment. Okay, you want your cake? I'll give you cake. In the avalanche that unfolds, verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. That is the created order. How God created us as biological human beings. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with their passion for one another. You want that? Here you go. Why? Because God was deleted from the equation. There's no wisdom. Everything's foolishness. It's folly without him, without his word, without his actions, without his character. And finally, of course, verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge him, and that actually ties back earlier where he's like, listen, you just got to go outside and look at the trees and the grass, the stars and the heavens, and you know someone created it. But humans want to suppress that truth and say, well, he doesn't exist, despite the evidence all around us. So if you're going to suppress that knowledge, that is, you're not going to acknowledge God, then God gives them up to a debased mind or a corrupted mind, an insane mind, to do what ought not to be done. In other words, you delete God from the equation of life. As the beginning, the foundation, and the purpose of life, you end up with insanity. You tell me that does not define exactly where we're at. A world that has gone fundamentally insane. I don't know about you, I read the paper sometimes in digital form, and I'm like, this doesn't even compute. And granted, I wanna say, I was dead in my trespasses and sins too. Before Christ, I was insane. Before Christ, you were insane. You got everything backwards and upside down because, in a manner of speaking, gravity was turned off in your life, and you just chose what you wanted to choose. But once God reached into your heart and was gracious to you and said, I'm here, I love you, I died for you, then all of a sudden it's like gravity got turned on and everything comes back in order. So I was insane at one point. But here you have the insanity of a world that has said, we don't want you anymore. What happens? It all comes apart. And we, 
have a gospel, a word from God that says, I have ordered things correctly. Trust me, receive my grace, and I will reorder your life with me at the foundation and me as the purpose of life. That's, that's wisdom. And that's the wisdom that the psalmist wants to impart, where God is the beginning and he is the end. Can you imagine for a moment building a, a skyscraper on a foundation not worthy of its weight? You can, because what happened in San Francisco, right? It's sinking and leaning now. Talk about not listening to Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus talked about building house on sand and rock. Like, it's right there. Or imagine yourself being a tree and deciding, I don't want to be a tree. I want to be a bird, and I'm going to put my roots in the air. The tree wouldn't live very long. The roots of a tree were meant to go into the nutrients of the soil and grow. The human heart was meant to have its roots sink into the nutrients of the gospel and God's word and God's character. That, church, Amen. is wisdom. So two simple points as we begin our journey through Psalm 49. To recognize that truth is timeless. It's enduring. It's absolute. never changes. That's the call, the universal call of wisdom, but also to recognize that wisdom begins with God. It begins and ends with God. And if you're unclear on that in your life, or you've never even heard about this, and you're like, yeah, my life's pretty chaotic, I'm, perhaps is because you need to be regrounded in God as the foundation and purpose of life and understand what it means to be wise. He has given you the grace. He's given you gospel in order to make that right. But to be clear, to be clear that wisdom always begins and ends with God. Amen? Amen. Lord, we pray that you would sink our roots into your foundation of who you are, your character, your word, the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for being kind to us when we didn't deserve it. We thank you for taking our insanity and turning it into understanding. And so we pray, uh, even as we unfold this new series, that you would just be at work in our hearts and minds, this community of faith building us and, and rooting us into who you are in Christ's name. Amen.